Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thora. Holy crap, it's here. This has taken me seven months of my life to complete, and I am super pleased how it turned out. What is Miguel talking about? It's my new book, Expat Secrets. You're going to be able to find it on Amazon right now. Let me just give you the full name of the book because I think it says a lot, okay? Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. Boom. I really like that. Basically, the book breaks down everything you need to know for leading an international life. This is timely information and modern, and it's a fun read. You can buy your copy right now by going to Amazon and searching Expat Secrets. This will really help support the show to grow. And if you want to be an awesome human being, what I want you to do is leave the book an honest review on Amazon. It actually makes a huge difference to new authors like me. Seriously, I mean this. Please get a copy of the book and please leave the book a review. It's just good karma. Okay, enjoy today's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show. And today's guest was born in Zambia, grew up in Canada, and now lives full-time in China. He is the CEO of SourceFind Asia, which specializes in connecting you with the best factories in China for your FBA, dropshipping, or custom manufacturing products. This is a boots-on-the-ground resource for any online business who works in physical goods. And he is the host of the Made in China podcast. Please welcome to the show, Rico Ingoma. Rico, how are you doing? Thanks, man. I love the energy. The pronunciation of my last name was perfect. I'm glad to be on the show. We, we were chatting before the episode started, and you were born in Zambia, and I've traveled a lot through Zimbabwe, and I've seen Zambia just like across the river, and I was like, man, I want to go over there. It looks so stunning, beautiful. You should definitely find that. I, obviously, I'm biased, but I always say that in terms of first-time travelers to Africa, I always say Zambia is an awesome place to go. In, in English, is the first language. It's super friendly, super peaceful. Uh, you get to see the best of both sides of Africa, where it's like the technology advancements in the city, and then you can also go to places like Victoria Falls, like what we're talking about, and see, you know, the natural beauty, and and you know, go on safaris and things like that. So. I definitely recommend Zambia as a, as a vacation spot. Oh, it's definitely on my list. I'm absolutely in love with Africa. I've been to South Africa, Botswana, Zimbabwe. I spent two weeks in Uganda. I was in Nigeria last two weeks ago. Kenya, a bunch of places, man. I absolutely love Africa. And you're making me feel guilty. You've been to more African countries than I have. 
Dude, I've been traveling a long time. I've been traveling a long, long time. So listen, why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of walk us through your backstory, how you got to China, how you got involved in the business that you're in, and kind of what you're working on. Yeah, so as you mentioned, I was born in Zambia, ended up in Canada, and you know, so I consider myself Canadian. And uh, I was just finishing up college, going into my last year of university, and just thinking, what, you know, I want to be an entrepreneur, and what is the fastest you know, fastest possible route to this. My parents are both entrepreneurs. My mom owned a, a bunch of clothing stores that then became hardware stores. And she was actually sourcing from China. So that was like the first little nugget that was planted in my seed that was planted in my brain at an early age. And then my dad was in the IT business. And, you know, I just knew. I said I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And then I was just going through a bunch of random forums, travel forums online. And I came across a link to a YouTube channel ended up being the elevator life which is now called enter china and there were just two dudes from the u.s from oregon tim and nick and they were just talking about living in guangzhou and starting various businesses they launched a watch company that made six figures and on kickstarter they were sourcing they started importing wines from oregon into china and i was like man like these guys are you know four years older than me seemed like normal guys and i was like i'm gonna do exactly what these guys are doing and, and uh, i joined they also had the entertainment community which is a, is a paid private membership i joined the next year flew out to china um immediately after i finished school and you know sold all my stuff and the rest is history that's awesome man so talk to me a little bit about where you live like what city you're in and why you chose this specific place so i'm in guangzhou guangzhou guangdong china and um, I chose Guangzhou because, like I said, my mom was sourcing from China before. So in 2008, just before the Olympics, me and my mom came down. We, we traveled to Hong Kong, Guangzhou, and then eventually Thailand. So for me, it was a, it was a vacation for her. She was working. But I, I saw Guangzhou at that time, and I didn't like it. I was, I was actually being a little bit of a brat, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> How old were you, did you say? 16 at the time. Oh, man, yeah. I remember... Just a side story, like after we left China, we went to, to Thailand, we went to Bangkok, and I just bought some new PlayStation 3 games. I literally spent the first two days of being in Bangkok at 16 years old in my hotel playing like FIFA, <laughs> FIFA 2008 or something. And I'm just like, I look back at that time period right now, and I'm like, man, like being 16 years old and then being in Thailand, like the amount of things I could have done, the experiences I could have had, but I spent two days playing video games. Anyways, coming to China at the time, I wasn't necessarily, especially Guangzhou. Old Guangzhou was not, it was not a, I wouldn't say it was like a, a fun place to, to come to. But I, I saw what my mom was doing. And I think it was in the back of my mind, even though I was being a brat. And when I came across that YouTube channel in 2013, they were in Guangzhou. And they were talking about how Guangzhou is developed and you know, they were showing shots of the city. And I was like, this doesn't look like the same place that I went to. And they were talking about how, you know, in, the, in five years, this whole section of the city called where I live right now, Yanhe, Lieda area, used to be a village. And now it's like, you know, the downtown area and it's vibrant and there's condos everywhere. There's, you know, hundreds of and thousands of, of restaurants from, you know, Turkish food to Japanese to Korean to Indian to you know, Western American food. Like, 
it just was like a completely different place. And they were just talking about how many opportunities there were here. So I, I just, I chose Guangzhou. Are there like a lot of expats there? Is there a big expat community there? Or are you kind of that one expat and then like 15 million Chinese? <laughs> it's kind of weird because, I, okay, I, I live, I guess the area that I live in, I, I, sometimes I joke and I say it's like little America or, or little Canada because there's a, there's a ton of expats here in my area specifically. It's a concentrated, the, the Tianhe area. Is a, is a concentrated part of the city that has a lot of expats. But in as a whole, no, there are not that many expats in China in general. In southern China, I think the largest concentration of expats would be in Guangzhou. But like, if you go even a little bit outside of the area that I'm in, you, you might not see an expat for, you know, one or two days. And then, like I guess, Shanghai would be the number one place with a ton of expats, and it has a history with expats. But today, I don't think I saw a single... I think I was... I never saw anybody that was non-Chinese today. Like... That happens quite frequently. Well, my wife is from Goyang, and we own apartments there. We own a bunch of properties there, and we go for weeks at a time. And I am the only Westerner that I see for the entire trip. Like, not even in the airport will I see another Westerner or anything like that. Like, it's really, really, really Chinese. So I get people, like, staring at me and watching me. And our daughter is, you know, half Chinese, half white. So people, like, stop in their tracks and, like, run up to her and are, like, asking questions and stuff like that because it's, it's just so different for them. <laughs> they take pictures and stuff. Oh, absolutely. When I first came to Guangzhou, uh, I, I think it's changed in Guangzhou because I think people have just gotten a little bit more accustomed to seeing foreigners. But when I first came to China and I first came to Guangzhou, that used to happen. I, I was also in, a, I was also in like, a village area of the city because it was just very cheap to live there. Uh, there would be times I'd take the subway and I would be standing in the subway and then, you know, the only foreigner in the cart and there'll be like a guy or a girl in front of me pretending to text. But the position of their phone was so clear that they're like taking a video or a picture. <laughs> it happened so many times. And I was like, I think on the third or fourth time, I just kind of looked at them and were like, seriously, man, like, I know what you're doing. <laughs> and then they would, like, they would panic and almost drop their phone. That was quite common, just walking around, being stared at, having a lot of kids, a lot of children uh, who I guess are learning English come up to me and say, hi, what's your name? That's, that's kind of cool. You definitely get a, a little sense of being a celebrity sometimes when you're, when, when you're in China. I love it, man. So talk to me a little bit about the city itself, because that is a monster of a place that you live in. Yeah, I mean, Guangzhou, I think oof, it's like 18 million people. It's a giant city, like coming from Toronto. Like half the population of Canada, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that's the funny thing, because before I left Toronto, I was telling people, I was like, moving to Guangzhou, they're like, what? what is going, why would you go there? It's like a village. I was like, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. And then I came and said, man, like this place is, you could fit Toronto like three, four times into the city, just on, in terms of the size of the city, let alone the, the population. It's separated into, I think, about six districts. Um, the district that I'm in, Tianhe, is the, is the newest one. It's sort of central. And then it's definitely a very industrial city. You can definitely see that once you get outside of the areas that are sort of new. You see the old Guangzhou. You see um, a lot of, like, old factories that are now, actually, interestingly enough, being turned into, like, offices, like sort of um, shared office spaces and stuff like that. So there's, like, a little bit of a hipster vibe going on there but then if you go a little bit further outside of the city you see a little bit more of the factories and, and Guangzhou is becoming so expensive for Chinese people to live in that you can just see people like sort of spreading out 
factories going further away from the the city and going into other cities. And it's, it's also the government's plan, I guess, to to sort of develop the the cities that are adjacent to Guangzhou. I say it's not an easy place to live. Like I'm used to it. I I think culturally, if you're not somebody who's traveled a lot. And if you're not very open-minded, you can find it difficult to to sort of navigate around when you know no one speaks English and you're doing a lot of sign language. It, sometimes things happen in China, for example, like getting off of the subway or getting into an elevator. There isn't that courtesy of people waiting for you to get off before they try to get on. <laughs> so, so a lot of times, you know, you're coming into the subway in rush hour, and it's like. There's a ton of people in the subway. You're like, okay, look, it's going to be easier for you to come onto the train if I get off first. There's no space here. You know, there's things like that. And I know a lot of people that kind of think that they're being rude, but it's just what it comes down to is the place has developed so quickly that I think a lot of the social norms that come with technology haven't caught up to to the actual expansion of the city. But you know, it's a good place to do business if you're in the manufacturing space. You can definitely have a very good life here. You know, it's relatively low expenses-wise in, in comparison to the West, of course. And then, yeah, in the area that I'm in, lots of foreign restaurants, lots of cool places to eat, um, bars, um, shopping malls. Like it, it's, it's, you know, there's the best of both sides. You can, you can also, right next to the most expensive shopping mall, there'll be, you know, a two-dollar dumpling place as well. So you kind of see both sides of China. That's why I like Guangzhou. I like Guangzhou because of those Well, everybody knows the world as, you know, China is the manufacturing hub. But what I think a lot of Westerners don't understand is it's not really China as a whole that does a lot of the manufacturing. It's really like your province that, or your city that you live in where the most of it is done, you know. And this is right next to Hong Kong, and you've got a huge port there. And there's just so many advantages, I would imagine, to living in that specific space. Yeah, so 90% of... You know, the products that are made are made between Guangzhou, Shenzhen, Foshan, and Dongguan. And all four of those cities are within two hours of each other. And then, of course, you have Hong Kong. That's right. It's right next to Shenzhen. That's also a two-hour train ride from Guangzhou. So you have the Hong Kong for shipping. And you also have the Hong Kong for finance. Because these days, a lot of tech companies are starting up in Shenzhen. And Shenzhen is becoming the new Silicon Valley. And you have the Hong Kong companies who are providing the, the investment firms in, in Hong Kong, and then you have the actual manufacturing being done in Shenzhen. So it, it's, a, it's a very, very interesting time to be in China. And for sure, 90% of the stuff is made just within southern China. Um, the rest of the factories are sort of in Zhejiang province, Jiangsu, Qingdao, which is, which is northeast. Well, I think it's really interesting. And you mentioned the finance center. So I don't talk about it very often, but I do a lot of coaching and consulting for my clients for actually setting up their business license in these offshore jurisdictions. And we do a lot in Hong Kong and in Singapore and places like this so that they will have access to the Chinese market quite easily. And like literally every week I have someone coming to me asking about the manufacturing that's done in China. You know, and it's one of the reasons that I'm so excited to have you on the show, Rico, is because I'm really interested to learn from you, from your experiences of living in this place and what it's like to do business. And like, and I really do want to get into like your experience with the drop shipping and the manufacturing and the FBA. But the whole process of actually living in China, like I think is just wild. Like I've been to China 50 times, 60 times. I married a Chinese girl. I own properties there. And I still don't even know if I would be able to handle living in China full time. <laughs> like it's so 
full on. Yeah, I mean, I have this expression for it in my French, but I sometimes say China ain't for witches. <laughs> and, and it's just that what I mean by that when I say that is just it's a difficult place to live. And I, I, I know a lot of people that have come to China with the plan of living here and are here for three to six months. And, and then, you know, they leave. And I, I think really what that comes down to is just I think a big part of it is the language barrier. I think that's huge. I think a lot of people that are able to survive here sort of learn how to speak Mandarin. But a lot of it is also cultural. It's just, it's, you know, there's a lot of cultural norms that are just so different. And if you haven't traveled a lot and you're coming to China and you want to live here, it can be exciting. It can be fun. There's a lot of cool things. Chinese people are super friendly and there's so many cool experiences that I've had. Like, for example, eating deep fried snake <laughs> on New Year's. <laughs> Kentucky Fried Snake. You know, you have these crazy experiences, but you have to be open-minded to be able to try those things. You know, if you don't sort of embrace the the culture, then, you know, the opposite is you, you're going to feel sort of alienated and maybe a little bit frustrated by some of the things that happen. Well, I often describe China not as a different country, but really as a different planet. Like, for example, my mother, she's traveled a lot as well. She's been to Korea and Japan and Thailand, and I brought her to Singapore and things like that. She wanted to go visit my mother and father-in-law and bring the baby over. And I was like, no, it's it's too difficult. It's too, too different. She's like, well, I traveled in Thailand by myself for two months. And I was like, Thailand and China, like, you can't even put them on the same <laughs> level. Like, Thailand is so yeah. easy. You know, she's been to Bali and things like this. I'm like, you can't compare that to like, not rural China, but like, you know, we're talking not the well-known cities. We're not even talking Beijing or something. Like, I don't know, man. She's going to some of the best vacation spots in the world. <laughs> and then saying, well, I, I could navigate China afterwards. Yeah, I've been to Asia, therefore I can handle China. China is another planet. It really is. So you mentioned language. Talk to me about language. Did you study Mandarin? Do you know much Mandarin? Has it helped? What? How's that worked for you? My Mandarin is, is, is survival. I call it survival Chinese, but I guess it's a little bit more conversational. The, the issue with my situation is that my staff all speaks English, even though they're Chinese. And then all of my clients speak English. So I'm on a daily basis, I'm actually not speaking that much Chinese these days because my life is also like, I have my apartment, my apartment's five minutes away from my office. My gym is two minutes away from my office. All my favorite restaurants are like three minutes away from my apartment. So I'm not really like uh, I'm not really in situations where I have to speak a lot of, of, of Chinese these days. But to answer your question, I it's a funny story. I actually studied Mandarin randomly, not with the plan of coming to China at the time. Uh, I think it was like 2012. I took like an introduction course to Mandarin, like a, a four to six months introduction course. And at the time, the idea was just like, oh, you know what? Like I can use this as a conversational a conversational piece when I'm trying to talk to girls. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair so, enough. yeah, I would be like, oh, you know, I can speak Mandarin. You know, that that, that was kind of it, me and my friends. Nihon Piao Liang. You are very beautiful. Nihon <laughs> <laughs> Piao. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, but it was great because it gave me the foundation. So when I came to China and I actually started, uh, I took uh, one semester at one of the universities here, Guangdong University of Foreign Studies. Um, oh, you know, actually two, two universities, Guangdong University of Foreign Studies and um, Sun Yat-sen University. And yeah, that was great because I had this foundation and then I took the uh, intensive courses here and that it very much made my, my transition into China much easier because when I was running around the city trying to figure out like my apartment situation and 
things like that, I was able to at least put together uh, a few coherent sentences, which I think a lot of people really struggle with when they when they get here for the first time. So you're not having to wo bu dao your way through everything, eh? <laughs> I mean, it comes up, you know, it comes up. But I mean, I, it's it's fun because like I, I'll take like a an Uber, which well, here it's called Didi, and on occasion, you know, the drivers will, will want to talk to me and yeah. you see rent, like where are you from, and then I have to start going back and forth. Like, so I don't mind those situations, and it, it helps me practice a little bit. I think the times when I actually really have to use my Mandarin are when I travel with clients to different parts of China. And then we're put in situations where I've never been to this place before and then I have to talk to a taxi driver and explain to them where our, our hotel is. That's when I, I, I you know, really get challenged. And do you use a lot of those translation apps like on WeChat or anything like that to help you? Yeah, sometimes. One thing that I use is Google Translator. Uh, even though Google is blocked, I have a VPN. And then also I downloaded the languages. So what's really cool about Google, Google Translator is obviously you can type in a sentence and then it translates into Mandarin and then you just show them uh, the sentence. The other thing is you can speak into it. Um, I don't really use that because I think the functionality doesn't really work very well. Um, and then, but the, one of my favorite features with that app is when I go to restaurants and I'm in the middle of nowhere, I can, you know, pull it up and then sort of scan the menu and then it will translate the items on the menu in real time. The translations aren't always perfect. Sometimes you have like, it'll say something like uh, toenail of goat and you're like, what? You're like, toenail of goat? I wouldn't put it past right? the Chinese, but uh, maybe it's yeah. not likely. <laughs> They're like, well, wait, toenail? Like, okay, I mean, I guess it'd be, it's fiber. You know, well, you've know, seen them eat those <laughs> chicken feet. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, so it'd be chicken feet, of course, yeah. I'm pretty adventurous, man, but that that's just weird for me, eh? Yeah, I've, I've drawn the line at chicken feet, but I ate it by mistake one time. And I was like, oh, they got me. They got me. <laughs> 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 so talk to me a little bit about your business. I'm really getting into the FBA and the drop shipping. I really want to understand this. Explain to me what you do with your company, like specifically how you bridge the gap from the Westerners to the to the Chinese market. So, uh, I mean, you explained it very well in, in your intro, but uh, essentially what we do is we're, we're a manufacturing consulting business. We will help clients go for anywhere from you know, a crude drawing on a napkin of your product to, you know, 2D to 3D to CAD and design files, bill of materials, finding manufacturers, making prototypes, going into mold mold production, mass production, shipping, quality control, uh, everything under the whole manufacturing sun. And, um, you know, I think that for me, I think the competitive the advantage that I have and the reason why I, I think we've been successful in this, in this space is one, you have to be extremely detailed when you're communicating with, with factories. You have to be extremely detailed. And then two, I understand both sides because I've been here now for like three, four years. My business partner ha has been in this space for 10 years. So I know when a client wants to explain something to a factory, I know how to sort of translate that language into into the factory speak. And then I also know when a factory is trying to communicate something to a client, how to then translate it to, to for my client to understand where the factory is coming from. Because I find that a lot of issues that people have are just based on, you know, miscommunication and, and not really understanding where each other are coming from. 
So in a previous life of mine, I had a t-shirt business and it was the same type of thing where I was trying to contact factories myself, but had no one there to represent me. You know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs start in this type of space. They, they take an idea of a product, they hear about made in China, they try to get it made there, get some samples, overpay, not what they wanted at all, it takes weeks to get there, they don't know how to communicate. You know, I, I imagine working with someone like you would really solve a lot of these problems straight off the bat. Yeah, I mean, my favorite clients are people that have gone through it themselves because they know. They know that it's a process. Like, there's simple things that for you as a, as a Western buyer, if you're dealing with a company in Canada or the States, you give them a list of questions. You know, do you do this? Are you capable of doing this? How can I get this done? And then they'll come back and answer every single question line by line. But if you send that same list of questions to a Chinese factory, they might come back and, like, answer one question and then start to ask you about a bunch of other things that are not related to what you what you asked them in the first place and then people people get frustrated like that those are and i understand it but then i also understand from the from the chinese side of things that sometimes the way you word a question changes how they read it changes how they understand it sometimes people use colloquial terms that you know we think as westerners everybody understands but then the factory has no idea what you're talking about you know, you have to, <laughs> you have to make sure that you're like I can imagine. Like, I, like I'm, I'm thinking back from five, ten years ago when I tried to do this T-shirt stuff, and you know, exactly like my behavior and what I, my expectations were. Yeah, and I've been on the other side where a client will send something to a sales group while I was at the factory, and then I saw them copy and paste the message into into a translator, and translate it into Chinese, then type in the their answers in Chinese and translated into English. So when I saw that happening, like the translation is not going to be perfect at all, right? <laughs> so then you can kind of... Not perfect. It's probably not even going to be like yeah. legible or, or decent. Yeah, so you, you're translating a message like three or four times and and it just ends up going to the client and the client's like, I, what is this? This is not what I asked at all. So where we sort of come in is your my staff speaks English, they read English, it's, it's one of those things that obviously it's a, it's a requirement for, the, for them to work for me. And, you know, when they get those messages, if they don't understand them something, they're not going into Google Translate to, to change it. They're saying, hey, Rico, can you have a look at this email, this, this message? And I just want to make sure I understand what the client is requesting. And then I'm the translator and I make sure because actually, by the way, I taught English in China for eight months. So during that time period, I had to learn how to break down English colloquial terms and, and sort of broader concepts and break it down into a way that Chinese people can understand by making it a you know a more simple or even just using language that they understood to make sure that they got it. So that, that helps me with my staff. A lot of times my job is really just sort of making sure that my staff understand what the customer's requirements are. So it's not so much about translating, it's almost about interpreting. Yeah, it's interpreting, exactly. Like uh, you hit the nail on the head. And yeah, I think that's, that's a, un it's a unique thing to do and it, it's funny man i'll see emails when i'm i'm in an email chain with my clients and i'll see an email that my client sends to the factory and immediately i know that the factory is not going to understand this and then i'll jump in and then i'll like break it down into a more simple version or a bullet pointed version and then you know they, they kind of get it so yeah communication is huge it's huge well even my mother she lives with us and my wife she speaks perfect English, like really, really fantastic. And I'll listen to my mom say something to my wife and 
I will have to interject and then translate my mother's English into English that I know my wife will be able to understand. But, you know, if you've lived overseas for a certain amount of years, you know, you have this process, this ability to speak to people who speak English as a second language and really understand what they're going to know, what they're going to understand, what words can be conjugated, which ones can't be, and the different workings of the English language. So it's almost like we're bilingual in English. If that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, if you look at Mandarin as a language, sort of the the conjugation terms like to the at the, these things don't exist. So a lot of times, if you speak to somebody and Mandarin is the first language and English is the second language or third language, and you're saying I would like to go to the bathroom, that just adding the I'd like to the those kind of things might confuse them. So you might want to say I want bathroom. You know, just a more simple way, because in, in Mandarin, it, that's the way it would be. It would be, you know, Wu W C, which would be like, I go bathroom. It's a more simple version. So like adding the conjugation terms sometimes confuses people. And, and, and one of the things about English is that we do, we do sometimes add a lot of things. We say, I'd like to do this, or I feel, you know, that we add a lot of conjugation terms to our sentences. So I think that that, that sometimes puts people in a position where they don't necessarily understand what the main point of the sentence is. Just going to take a quick break. Okay, new book is here. It's called Expat Secrets, How to Make Giant Piles of Money, Live Overseas, and Pay Zero Taxes. This book took me seven months to write and publish, and it's a culmination of some of the best stuff I've learned over my 20 years living as an expat. I cut out all the crap and tried to give you the real meat with this book. If you ever wanted to live overseas, or if you are already living overseas and you want to take things to the next level, to legally reduce your tax bill, to live a more international life, and get the best of everything planet Earth has to offer, then you must go to Amazon right now and purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Pause the episode and go take a look. It's cool. I'll wait. Seriously, you guys are going to love this. Enjoy the book. So talk to me about some of the other challenges that you have. So language is obviously one of them, and we talk about this one, but there's got to be so many challenges that you're able to help solve because you are physically there. Mm -hmm. And you're, like I said before, like you really are boots on the ground mm -hmm. resource for, for anyone who wants to do these types of businesses. I think, uh, I think peace of mind is, one, is another big thing for, for the people that work with me, uh, the people that usually ask me for advice is people are always worried about factories like stealing their ideas, you know, and then copying it and selling it themselves. Or they're worried that they're going to transfer, you know, $20,000 as a deposit and then the factory is going to disappear. They're, they're worried that they're going to get, they're going to order something and then it's going to show up and it's completely different from what they ordered. So I think those are the, the other challenges that people have and those are the things that I sort of step in with regards to peace of mind. And it's just, you know, putting suppliers through vetting processes like there are certain questions that i usually ask factories to make sure that i'm actually dealing with a factory and not a trading company so what's the difference between a trading company and a factory so a trading company is, a, is sort of like a broker they they buy and sell products from the factory to the client so if you're trying to maybe with your t-shirts for example if you're trying to make t-shirts in, in, in china you would contact somebody on alibaba and 
they might tell you that they're a factory, but really what they're doing is they're just taking your order, maybe putting it together with somebody else's order, maybe one of their other clients, then going to a factory and saying, here's two orders for X amount of t-shirts. Can you get me a good deal on this? And then the factory will come back to them and say, okay, it's going to be, you know, 50 cents a shirt. And then they're kind of come back to you and say, it's going to be 90 cents a shirt, right? So they make their money on, on the spread. So on the arbitrage. Exactly. And the thing is, a lot of times those trading companies don't tell you that they're trading companies. They just kind of play it like their factories. And it's difficult for somebody who's not in China to verify that, right? Like, how, how would you verify that besides actually sending somebody to visit their facility? So that's that's where my team would come in. But And even then, sometimes if you visit a quote-unquote factory, it might also be a trading company and they're just using somebody else's space for a day and pretending like it's their factory. <laughs> well, when I was doing my research, I don't know if I was watching one of your YouTube videos or I was listening to Made in China podcast that you host, and you were talking about, you know, going in to see a factory and basically only being there for a couple of minutes and then straight away they want you to drink tea and they're not trying to answer your questions and trying to like usher you out the door. <laughs> uh, that was my second time visiting a factory. So me and my business partner, this was back in 2015, and it, it was on the podcast and it was actually a pretty recent episode, I think. Yeah, so basically we were visiting a factory on, on behalf of a client and we went into the office and you know the office was, I was like, oh, this is great. Like I'm looking around, they had, it was a toy manufacturer and they had like very, very detailed Batmans and Hulks and you know, I'm a big Batman fan, so I was just like, oh, this is this is crazy. Like, they're, they're making amazing, amazing toys here. This is so, so detailed. So I'm like, oh, this, these guys must be great. But we're in the office, right? And we came to see their factory. So we said, hey, can we see your factory? They're like, oh, you know, factory's kind of far away. And we're like, uh, no, I mean, we literally came down to Shenzhen for this. So, you know, we've got all day. And then they say, okay, the factory's 45 minutes away. We're like, okay, let's go. So we jump in the, the car and we, we drive over there. The first thing that happened was the security guy verified whose car <laughs> whose car we were in, which was <laughs> unusual because this guy supposedly is the owner of the factory. So it's like, why would the security guy be like not familiar with the owner's car? <laughs> or even if the owner was driving somebody else's car, wouldn't he just see his boss's face and just wave him through so that was like the first red flag but i didn't notice that my business one and then we went into the factory and then you know the guy just kind of like took us on a usually when you do a factory tour you're looking at all the different steps of the manufacturing process from where the raw materials are to the machinery to you know how they actually process the raw materials to the production line to packaging to the shipping process like and that that tour if it's a larger factory, which this place was, that tour would take 20, 30 minutes to go through at least. We walked through this place in like two minutes and he didn't really explain anything. And he's like, oh, let's go into office, let's get some tea. Like, well, I was just, I, again, I didn't notice anything at the time. I thought it was a little bit quick, but I didn't notice anything at the time. And then the real kicker was the guy stepped out of the office for a bit and then there was a little kid that was kind of playing around the area. And my business partner spoke to the kid in Chinese for, you know, 30 seconds or something. And then at the end of the visit, my business partner was like, his name is China Mike, by the way. My business partner was like, hey, uh, you know, what did you think of the factory? I was like, oh, man, it was great. Like, uh, did you see that Batman? That was, that was awesome. Like, and he goes, that's not his factory. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, first of all, I mean, who verifies that their boss is their boss? Like, you know your boss. 
And then second, he's, when he spoke to the kid, he asked the kid, he asked the kid, like, oh, you know, what are you doing here? He's like, oh, this is my dad's bike. And he's like, oh, that guy's your dad? And the kid was like, no, I've never seen that guy before. <laughs> this, is, this is my dad's office. Like, I have no idea who that dude is. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean. So what do you think happens? Like, they just, like, call someone up and, you know, they know someone who works at the factory and they just kind of sneak in on lunch hour? Like, like how does that work? Typically, the way that works is that, so this guy probably owned a trading company because we went to their office first, which is a completely different location. They probably take orders and then process them with this factory that we went to look at. So what they would do is they would call up the factory and be like, hey, guys, we have a potential new client. We need to come to the factory and, and take them on a tour and you know pretend like it's our factory. So then at that stage... So you think that like they're honest with the other Chinese, of course, saying yeah. that we're going to deceive these Westerners? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's kind of standard practice. I don't even know if they look at it as deception. I think they look at it as deception now because people are a lot of Westerners are pushing to know, to know this information. But in the past, no one knew that this was happening, right? So it was just a normal thing. They just look at it like, you know, it's them putting on a presentation, right? I think where it it gets really shady is when sometimes they will go into a space and literally like take down the information that's there like they'll take down business licenses and stuff like that and put up their own stuff that's where i think it's really that's when i think they're really pushing it you know but yeah it's i mean for me now that was three years ago like for me now when i walk into a factory like i know within two minutes whether this is a legit factory or not and it's just that's from experience at this stage i've probably gone to like a hundred different factories I have another experience recently that happened in the summer and a client of mine from the States, he came down and it was actually an order that we processed for Walmart as a fidget spinners. And we we went to the factory, quote, again, quote unquote, and the first thing I noticed when I walked in was that they were claiming to produce a very, very high number of fidget spinners per day. And then I looked at the machines that they had and they only had two or three machines that were making the, that specific product. And I was like, it just doesn't, it just, the volume that they told us just didn't match the machinery that they had. That was the first thing. And the second thing is I was walking around and I'm looking at the walls and looking at, you know, how the office is set up. And I was just noticing that there was nothing on the walls, no signs, no posters, no pictures of the company, the staff, nothing. And then, you know, there was barely anybody working. We walk into the production assembly room. There was about two lines of production, maybe three or four people kind of randomly putting together fidget spinners. And I was like, again, this just doesn't make sense. Like if you were looking at a big factory that's producing 100,000 fidget spinners a week, there's no way that they would be able to do this with this sort of manpower. And then we walked into the boss's office and <laughs> it was just hilarious because there was nothing in the office besides just a desk and a computer and a tea set, always, always a tea set. And then... Um, I looked, I looked around and I saw a box that had the, the it was the box of the tea set. Like that tea set had just been delivered two days before, <laughs> you know, like he still had the, the box that the tea set came in. So I was like, this is not his factory. He just set up shop here and is pretending like. So you really have to play like detective at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of times that's when I'm walking around factories, I'm kind of just inspecting things and looking for you know the red flags and it's 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 fun it's interesting and in my again my client was now in the position of me three four years ago because he was like oh this is fantastic this is this is great 
<laughs> I was like, I was like, no, man, this is not, <laughs> this is not great. They are not making your products here. Like, <laughs> we must abort mission, you know. But yeah, it's 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 interesting. Like, I really enjoyed it. I enjoy the the process of eliminating, and and I mean, sometimes it it, it can be time consuming because I've had situations where we were visiting six factories, and five out of six of them were fake, or they they made false promises to us and then we went there and it wasn't what they said it was so that that can be frustrating sometimes but at the same time it is interesting when you you go into these, and it's so blatant what i see is not correct you know yeah that's just a wild experience and, the, and that's stuff that you know if someone is trying to source from the united states and they're looking through alibaba they'd have no way of getting any of this information like really you need to be there in person or you need to have someone you trust to do it for you. Yeah, yeah, and in, you know, there's inspection companies that specialize in, in doing quality control inspections or going to visit factories. Obviously, that's something that we do as well. But you know, you can also do you can also use companies that do like the one-off services. So I mean, I always always recommend that people sort of do a factory inspection. If the factory is not a recommendation from somebody else, you do really want to do your due diligence. And even just before when you're doing research, like. We tried to get in contact with between 20 to 50 suppliers, depending on the product, because we know that if we do that, we're going to notice sort of similarities, differences, and then we can narrow down to the best, you know, let's say three to five options that we then, you know, maybe want to go visit. So you you have to spend a lot of time. It's tedious. I know a lot of people don't want to sit down and go through Alibaba or 1688 or Global Sources and, and contact 20 to 50 different companies. But, you know, if you, it's your business, right? So you've got to do it properly. So do you have a number of factories that you like to go back to over and over again? Or are you usually starting from square one because there's just such a large amount of factories out there? Depends on the product. Like, of course, there's some factories. There's a factory that we've been working with. For, there's two factories that we've been working with for three years. There's another three factories that we've been working with for like two years. We have a shipping company that we've been working with for like my business partner was working with that shipping company before I started even working with them. So there are definitely some some suppliers that we go back to that we trust. But then again, we again we're a consulting company, so we take on clients from all different spaces. So we're quite often doing research on new suppliers, which is fine because we have a process for researching and then vetting and narrowing down the the best the best options. So for example, if you were to go to another company and try to do fidget spinners, you'd already know who to go to. But if you were doing something maybe in the textile space, you might have to find a different company. Or if you were doing something in electronics, you would go out and find someone new. Yeah, and, and the good thing now is that I've been here for such a long time that I can tap into my network as well. So a lot of times, I think the best way to find a factory is a recommendation. So I have one of my, my good business friends, his name is Tiger. He's been in the manufacturing space for like, 15, 20 years. He actually used to work for Nike for like 10 years. And he just has contacts like for almost any product that I can I can think of. He has, you know, factories that he knows or a friend of a friend. And a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll contact him and ask him to, to give my team a recommendation. I know that if he's, if he's recommending somebody to me, generally they're going to be good. Because a big thing in China is Guangxi, which is who do you know? It's, it's relationships. And Mianza, which is a saving face. So if Tiger introduces a factory to me and they end up not being a good factory or providing poor quality product, it's 
embarrassing for Tiger and damages our relationship, which means he's going to lose face. So, so, you know, there's, there's a huge trust factor there. Everything in China is about saving face and giving face. Exactly. Like, I, I understand this concept very, very, very well. Being married to Chinese, like the interworkings of the relationships with people is something that you really have to pay attention to. Yeah, so it, it's huge. And that's why, uh, actually, uh, going back to the factories thing, it, when you build a relationship with a factory, if you sit down, let's say you sit down with a factory and you, know, you want to negotiate a, a quality point, you want to negotiate a certain thing that has been an issue. You want to sit down... Try to sit down with the boss of the factory and have him agree to the points in front of the staff. Because, again, going back to Mian's face, if the boss agrees to do something and then, you know, later on the factory doesn't do it or it doesn't, it's not done the way he agreed to do it, he's going to lose face in front of his own employees. You know, so it adds a, a little bit of extra pressure on the, the staff to make sure that, you know, they're, they're doing what their boss agreed to do. That makes you know, sense. So there's, there's like little things like that that you, you pick up. And again, you, like when you've been here for a while, you start to play the game from, from the local side. Like this is stuff that I didn't know about before I came here. Now that I'm here and I'm, I'm embracing that culture, I'm beginning to sort of play the game the Chinese way. I love it. And you mentioned earlier about the shipping companies. I imagine that working with shipping companies could be a little bit tricky as well with all the customs and all the red tape and the paperwork and things like this. Yeah, shipping is, com is complicated, but if you have a good freight forwarder, they usually handle most of the documentation and they'll be able to walk you through the process. I mean, there's, there's basically two ways to ship. You can ship by sea, you can ship by air. And then within that, there's various different shipping shipping types so there's lcl and lcl is when you share a container with somebody and then you can also get a full container i think most people that are starting off are going to do lcl and that just means that you're sharing a container with other products and, and you know the documentation that you're going to be looking at is you want to get like a packing list from your factory and provide it to the shipping company the packing list just sort of shows what you're sending the dimensions the weight all that stuff that allows the shipping company to sort of submit those documents and that information to the, you know, the China Sea Authority or, or to the airport. And then also you're going to get a bill of lading when the product leaves, the bill of lading, specifically when, when it's leaving by, by sea, it tells you the vessel number, it tells you where it's going, it, it says who the notify party is, like whoever's receiving the product on the other side of things. You probably will have to sign a power of attorney document so that, you know, your shipping, your agent can handle the customs when it arrives in your country. So there's, there's things like that. There's a lot of different documents, but again, your freight forwarder should be able to walk you through that process. Or, of course, if you're working with a, with a consultant, they should also be able to walk you through you know, the documents and explain everything. Well, for me, my biggest fear, I suppose, for lack of a better word, was you, know, you, you see a sample, you see maybe one or two products, and they put the major load on a boat, you get it however long it takes to get to the States or to Canada or Europe or wherever, you open up the, the shipping container and it's not what you expected at all or the numbers are not there or there's broken pieces. And like, like I can just imagine what a nightmare that would be. You've handed over money. You've waited weeks or something for your product to arrive. You have customers who are waiting for it and it's not what you expected. So that's never happened to me. So that, that it's one of those things that I think it's happened to... It might have happened to my business partner like eight years ago, but and I think that used to happen quite frequently to people that were doing business with China. I think the factories are behaving better. I think 
buyers are becoming a little bit more savvy. But one thing that you have to do is you have to set expectations. So that's what I do as well with my clients. I set expectations with my clients. I set expectations with the factories. And what I mean by that is if we're saying, hey, I want to make this T-shirt, what are the dimensions of the T-shirt? You know, what is the material of the T-shirt? What color is it? And not just, hey, it's red. No, what is the Pantone color code? We need to agree on the specific Pantone color code, and then we need to agree on the swatches. We need to agree on all those basic things. And then we need to put that into a document, usually a sales agreement. And then also when it comes to quality, documenting, you know, what is a defect? What is a minor? What is a major? What is a... Uh, is a critical defect. This is called the AQL level. Uh, I won't go too deep into it. You can Google AQL level uh, inspections. And, uh, you know, critical defect is basically something that makes the product unsellable. Uh, major defect is something that will sort of diminish the product's value in terms of the customer. And then a minor defect is usually something that you would notice as, as the buyer, but your end customer is probably not going to notice. So like you have to agree on all those points. And then if you agree on those points, then you're setting expectations with the factory, you're setting expectations for yourself. Obviously you agree on the sample. And then the key thing from there is, you know, making sure that you're following the production and then doing a quality control inspection at the end. So when you do the quality control inspection at the end, that means that the product's been produced. Usually they'll pack a certain percentage of them. Let's say they'll pack 20% of them. And then you send in an inspector to do an AQL level two inspection and they'll take a random sample size of the product and inspect those. And then they'll check that everything's been packed. They'll check that you have the right numbers. And then when your freight forwarder picks up the product as well, they're going to count that they have the right numbers. So if you have all those checks and balances in place, you're not gonna end up in a situation where you have less products when they arrive or the products are not what you expected them to be. That makes sense. No, it does make sense. So it's just really about doing your due diligence. And I guess a lot of the horror stories maybe that I had heard of were probably, like you said, from 5, 10, 15 years ago or something like that. So that's good to see that things are clearing up a lot. And a lot of times when stuff like that happens, it's handshake deals where, you know, clients are not, they're not putting in contracts in place. Because I mean, handshake deals were so common in China. It's, it's not unusual. Like a lot of factories that I deal with, we always sign sales agreements. Like we've had orders where the order was a thousand dollars and we signed a sales agreement with the factory and they're like, Why are we signing a contract over a thousand dollar order? Like it's our process, we do it every single time. It has nothing to do with the size of the order. We just we wanna make sure that, you know, we follow the same process every time and then we don't end up in situations where, you know, the client ends up getting a product that they didn't that they didn't want. You know, so you just have to make sure you're 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 following the right steps. Well, when I first started as an entrepreneur, there were so many things that were just handshake deals. And it's amazing how people's memories get warped over time or how people interpret things. Now, my process is I go to my lawyer, I have things draft up. Yes, it costs me more money up front, but in the long run, actually, it's worked out a lot better for me. So I work with a bunch of different lawyers for different businesses and different projects. But every dollar that I spend with them is money well spent, honestly. Yeah, I mean, I will say that just because you sign a contract in China doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to follow the, the contract to the T. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can pursue it legally. Of course you can, but it, it's probably going to be a waste of time. The, the good part about having a contract is you're setting expectations. That's the basic thing. You're setting expectations. It's a, a simple agreement to say, this is what I'm expecting from you, and this is what you can expect from me. And if we don't 
match each other's expectations. What is the recourse? That's and so I assume you have it also translated into Chinese. So you have an English copy and a Chinese copy. Yeah. So I have two different sets of sales agreements. One is for sort of the FBA dropshipper type products, which is a more simplified version. That's also in English and Chinese. And then the other one is for ODM products, which is fully customized products. That's a more extensive contract that was drawn up by a lawyer in Canada, and then I had it drawn up by a lawyer in China, like translated by a lawyer in China, and then the Chinese lawyer added a few things to it. So yeah, definitely, definitely try to get um, English and Chinese contracts. And the, and the importance of that, beyond obviously clarification, is that if you were to, let's say, pursue it legally, the factory would then say, well, the contract was in English. I didn't 100% understand what they they wanted from us, and that that that's okay in China. Like that that would be deemed as, as an acceptable excuse in the court. So you, you got to make sure that you know your Chinese your contract is in English and Chinese, and then also in the contract you should stipulate that if there is a dispute and you you pursue it legally, one where is the arbitration going to be held? Two. Which contract is considered to be the, the standard? Is it the English one or the Chinese one? Of course, it's you want it to be the English one because you you drew up the English one. Oh, that makes perfect sense. This conversation is really fascinating. Like I had Jim Cockrum on the show who he does, I don't know, $25, $30 million a year in FBA and drop shipping and things like that. And he teaches really the marketing side and the customer facing side of the business. So it's really interesting for me to get you on the line, Rico, and really talk to you about all the behind the scenes stuff. A lot of the things that people don't initially think of when they want to go into this type of business model. Yeah, I mean, and again, I, I think just to sort of backtrack, like I think that people might get overwhelmed with the stuff that I'm talking about. But at the beginning, when your orders are very small, it doesn't have to be as extensive, as formal as some of the stuff that I'm saying, but it's even just having a very simple one page agreement you know, is, is going to be better than not doing it at all. I think as your business grows, as your orders get larger, you, your contracts can get way more expensive. Like I have contracts with factories where it's a two-year agreement and we're specifying things like if a raw material cost goes up by X percentage, then the per unit cost will go up by X percentage. And if the currency exchange, if the dollar becomes stronger, then this is what, how that translates into our per unit cost. Like that stuff gets you know, quite complicated. But then in those kind of orders, we're dealing with six-figure, seven-figure orders. So, you know, a fluctuation of 2 to 3% in, you know, the currency is a big deal. You don't necessarily have to go down that route. I think that the basic things would just be setting the expectations for quality and the expectations for, you know, you know the timeline of the project and what the product actually is. Those three things are super important, no matter the size of your order. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that's why it's so important to have either your company at Source Find Asia, you, Rico, or another company who's really going to look out for you, someone who's been through this process, you know, dozens or hundreds of times, and they can help you navigate this type of system so that when you get your product and you put it up on Amazon or you're putting it on Shopify or however you decide to distribute, it's what you want, that you're getting the good price, you know, that your customer is going to be happy with the end result, which they receive. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's what we try to do. We try to execute that. And a big part of what I do with my team as well is just I try to get them to think from a customer's perspective. You know, we have situations where a factory will come back to us and say, you know, hey, by the way, we're pushing back production by three weeks without any sort of explanation. And then my team will come to me and say, like, 
you know, this is what happened. And I'll say, well, you think from the customer's perspective and go back to the factory and explain to them from the customer's perspective why this is not acceptable. And then my team will go back and, you know, they'll they'll go and explain to the factory that, hey, by the way, you pushing back the production by three weeks means this is going to affect my the client's Christmas sales or, you know, they have maybe a client that's already uh, pre-sold their product and they then have to go tell their clients and, you know, things like that. And then you'll be surprised how many times if you actually take the time to, you know, communicate with factories in that way, they come back and say, okay, sorry, we still need to push it back by five days, but, you know, we won't do three weeks. It's like things like that. It's super important when you need to have people that talk into the factory in real time in China, in Mandarin or Cantonese, and just, you know, looking out for your best interest. I love it. So imagine, Rico, that I come over to Guangzhou, we're eating some hot pot, taking some shots of Muay Thai, some Chinese wine. <laughs> I retired the Muay Thai. I can't, I can't do oh it. Oh my God. Every time I go back to China, my father-in-law, <laughs> we drink like bottle after bottle <laughs> after bottle. So for, <laughs> for any of my listeners who don't know, this is like top shelf Chinese wine, but it's not really wine as we would think of this is 54 percent a spirit made from sorghum and it is strong <laughs> yeah sometimes even higher than that i've, I've seen uh, it, the other name that they call it here is, is baijiu which translates to white alcohol or white wine but it's not obviously it's not wine as you said i've seen it go up to like 65 percent you know alcohol you know <laughs> They even sell it in like 7-Eleven for like 50 cents. <laughs> <laughs> so I convince you, Rico, to sit down with me and drink some Muay Thai. And I lean into you, buddy, and I'm like, okay, Rico, what's that one secret to success? What's that one secret to success of doing business in China that if I told anybody else in the whole wide world, you'd have to kill me? What's that one secret, Rico? <laughs> I think patience. Uh, I think that China has taught me to be a very patient person because when you deal with factories a lot of times you have to ask the same question a few times to get to get an answer you have to reiterate a lot of points you have to take the time to sit down and write out you know very clear instructions documentation or sops that the factories can follow you know step by step like these kind of things are are quite tedious like and actually one of the big one of the best things that's happened is from a man management perspective I've become a micromanager with my staff, but I know that when I work with, because I have a few employees now that are like in the Philippines, last year I had an uh, intern from, from the UK. When I work with Westerners, it's so easy for me because I don't have to explain as much as I usually do. And when I do give explanation, or when I do give instructions, it's very, very clear and very, very precise because of all the work that I've done dealing with factories and dealing with my own employees. So just the the patience thing is, is huge for, for doing business in China. If you can, and also just sometimes things take a long time to develop. Like if you want to, let's say, import into China, that's a, that's a long process. That is a very, very long process. You have to build the relationships. You have to take the time. You have to come down here. I love it. Brilliant. Rico, such a pleasure to have you on the show. I love learning from you. So much information you shared. I got a page full of notes here. Lots of cool stuff. If my listeners, if they want to reach out to you, if they want to find more about what you do, where can we send them? You can check out our website, sourcefinasia.com. Also, the YouTube channel is the same name, sourcefinasia. Made in China podcast, as, you, as we talked about a few times. And then my email address is rico at 
sourcefindasia.com. Absolutely. And I'll make sure I put all the links and the resources at expatmoneyshow.com under Rico's show notes for his episode. And, and one more thing, if, if you want to see me wistfully looking into the distance, you can follow my SourceFindAsia Instagram account. <laughs> wistfully into the distance. Just, Excellent. You know, posing <laughs> over the oak table in my office. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks so much for being on the show. I'll talk to you soon, okay? All right, man. Thanks. Really enjoyed it. Okay, I want to read you the reviews from the back of the book that some massively famous people in the international living space have wrote for me. See if you recognize some of these names, okay? So Gregor Gregerson says, In Expat Secrets, Mikkel elegantly describes the many benefits that accrue to those that choose their country of residence and provides practical and timely tips and examples for doing so. This book is a game changer. Leif Simon says, Having lived and worked overseas for more than a quarter century myself, I've seen expats make every mistake under the sun. Save yourself time and energy and learn from someone who has actually done it. Expat Secrets is the book to get you started in your international journey. Edmund John says, Having incorporated hundreds of companies from my clients over the last seven years, this book is very helpful for those that are starting out. And Michael Cobb says, a huge thanks to Mikkel for clearly written, concise description of the international experience as lived by a true globetrotting pioneer. Especially refreshing is the chapter on the benefits of raising kids overseas. As the father of two third culture kids, I can personally assure you that no education expands the mind more than growing up overseas. And my good friend David McKeegan wrote the foreword to this book. But I will let you read that yourself when you go to Amazon today and you purchase your copy of Expat Secrets. Thanks, guys. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.